Hello, and a very warm welcome to the Positively UK podcast. I'm your host, Chris. So before we begin, grab yourself a cuppa and take a moment out of your day. So on today's show, we're going to talk about what it means to age with HIV. It's fair to say there's been many advances made in medication that allow people living with HIV to remain healthy, changing what once was a fatal diagnosis to a condition that can be managed by effective treatments. This means that people living with HIV are living longer and healthier lives. We all age, which presents challenges to our physical, mental and our social well-being. I was diagnosed HIV positive back in 2015, and even I've noticed a few changes since then. I'm a lot more moany and creaky than I used to be. These are, of course, a part of the changes that come with aging, and also with living and managing a long-term condition. Following our discussion on ageing and HIV back in January, I caught up with our panel Dr Tristan Barber and Peer Mentor Coordinator Rob Hammond so they could answer some of the questions you sent in. Okay, so let's get on with the show. Joining us today is Dr Tristan Barber, Consultant Physician in HIV Medicine at the Royal Free Hospital. He is a British HIV Association Trustee and Executive Committee Member as well as Chair of the Beaver Education and Scientific Subcommittee. Tristan has recently established a dedicated frailty service for ageing patients with HIV, the Sage Clinic. And also joining Tristan is Rob Hammond, a HIV peer mentor coordinator at the Sussex Beacon and is a qualified psychotherapist, coach, clinical supervisor and facilitator. From 2012, for several years, Rob provided reduced rate counselling to people living with HIV at the Helios Centre in London. He was diagnosed HIV positive in 2011 at the age of 54. Hello and welcome to you both. How are you? Hello. Hi, thank you, Chris. It's really good to have you here. It's going to be a baptism fire for you both. So I'm going to launch into our very first question. And, And that is, what does it mean to be growing older with HIV? to you personally as individuals and also to the people that you see. Um, Tristan. Thank you. Yes, I I, I think this is a very uh, difficult question to answer because we've seen many services uh, who define or many research studies as well who define a sort of, uh, you know, an age cutoff for being older with HIV. And many people will take that to be 50, which I think uh, is certainly for me becoming increasingly younger uh, all the time. but for me, it's a, it's a two-step uh, thought process, really, to think about what it means to be aging with HIV. Because, of course, there's your chronological age. There's whatever age you attained last birthday. But also there's your HIV age, if you like. So you can be, you know, 70 and you can have been diagnosed in 2019. Or you can be 70 and you can have been diagnosed in 1982. And the way you've aged with HIV is, of course, very different as to where you entered uh, that HIV journey. Um, So I think it's a combination, really, of your, as I say, your your birthday age, but also, if you like, your your HIV age and where you entered that journey and where you started that process. Rob, from your perspective, what's your thoughts? Um, I would very much agree initially with what Tristan has said, certainly from the people I work with and support in Brighton, um, how long they were diagnosed for is a big factor in how they are aging and, and you know, um, any 
comorbidities that they may have developed. So that's very, very true. The more recent the diagnosis, the shorter your journey living with HIV, your, um, you know, the aging will be different. Uh, for me as an individual, um, I've not noticed any big impact in my aging. I feel as if I'm aging as if I would have done anyway. But then, you know, in, in a span of things, in an 11-year diagnosis isn't that long to have been living with HIV. Uh, so I'll have to wait and see how it goes, I guess. <laughs> I don't know about you, um, Rob, but I, I tend to find that um, since my HIV diagnosis, actually, I've I've probably become more active rather than less active. So whilst I, I haven't noticed a particular change in uh, in how I age necessarily, it's, it's it's been a natural progression, I guess, in that sense. But um, for, for me personally, it hasn't been a, a huge um, aspect of my of my HIV journey. Um, Rob, in terms of the, the mental health aspects and the concerns, as there are, they are quite a key issue during the lockdown. In your experience, what are some of the social concerns that the, the LGBTQ communities are presenting with at the moment? So we're talking about sort of the, the mental health support aspect and, and of course, the de- decreased social interactions. What's, what's it been like? I think the most important thing has been the last point you mentioned, which is a decreased social interaction. Uh, Social isolation in people living with HIV um, is quite a big factor, Um, especially down in Sussex, where Brighton itself has a a big community, of course, but there are lots of people who live outside of Brighton in the sort of rural areas of east and west Sussex. So the social isolation for them is even more pronounced. Um, loneliness, you know, is is a big factor that a lot of people have to deal with. There's also, I think, because of the pandemic, uh, those people who, you know, remember the onset of HIV and AIDS in the 80s, for, for some, there has been, you know, a slight post-traumatic stress effect in sort of reliving past memories and the impact that the last pandemic had on them as well. So there's a couple of things I think that are more pronounced that are going on there. Um, Lockdown means you can't get out to the support groups that you're used to accessing. Um, A lot of services have moved online, but not everyone has, you know, immediate access to the internet. There is still a lot of internet poverty. Um, Older people may as well may not be familiar uh, with using things like Zoom uh, to connect with other people. Um, so there's a few things that are impacting on people. Also, waiting lists for any mental health support that they might be trying to access is always a problem. Um, but with moving sort of these services online, I think that's put a bit of a bottleneck in the services as well. So it's a bit of a catch-22, really. The, the lockdown certainly hasn't helped. I mean, picking up that point about digital poverty, is there um, is there other ways that people can can contact um, regarding therapeutic support and actually get access to that if they, if they don't have access to a smart device, for example? I think with therapeutic support at the moment, it's difficult. Um, There are some services that offer therapeutic support, I suppose, via chat, but you still need to be able to get online. Um, We're lucky at the Beacon because we're classed as an essential service, so we can still see face-to-face clients within a a COVID-secure environment. So uh, we're not 
totally shut down. But I know other organisations like THT, for example, have had to move their counselling service online. And for some people, that excludes them. Interesting. Is the same true of of the the psycho psychological support that's offered through the NHS? Um, seeing the same types of issues at the moment as well. I think um, you know what Rob touched on is is absolutely true. I think there's a, a massive regional variation in what people are are able to access in addition to their issues around um, digital poverty. Uh, we know that. Uh, in the last decade, certainly, there's been a, a really differential um, retention of psychological services in-house within HIV clinics. So I'm quite lucky at the moment to work in a service where we've retained uh, a strong uh, psychological service, but I have worked in other services where our psychologists have been lost um, due to funding issues. So I think there's a there is quite a a postcode variation in terms of access to psychological services within embedded within HIV services. Um, we have uh, to compensate for some of the digital poverty issues. We very much tried to uh, have a list of people who are vulnerable or who are shielding. Uh, and even if they've not had a dedicated uh, psychology referral or not had an identified psychological need, one of our uh, nurse specialists has uh, made sure that she's kept in touch with those people regularly uh, by phone and updated them about uh, issues around shielding, issues around the change in our services, issues around accessing HIV medicines, um, encourage them to get support from their GP even when services have been shut down. So we've we've tried to go out of our way to make sure that uh, people are supported. Um, I think one of the problems has been that of course, last summer, uh, when we were trying to look at ways to innovate and make sure uh, that we could support people who didn't have access to online services, um, we were just kind of really getting some of those projects up and running when, of course, we went into the tier system and then subsequently the second lockdown. So uh, unfortunately, we have found ourselves back in the position we were in in the, in the first wave lockdown without some of some of the modifications we would have liked to have made uh, being in being in place. So it has very much been a case of just a, a very quick adaptation you know considering everything that's happened with with covid since since it's um since it's startup. It has I think it's I think it's very important that people know that services are open we're not closed uh, HIV services around the country are uh, open, you know, in different ways, but uh, your clinic will be able to provide you support if you if you have a need. So it's very important that people contact their GP, that they contact their clinic, they stay in touch, uh, even when we're in a period of lockdown, because there will be services that you can be signposted to, uh, even if your clinic is not seeing people face to face. And following on from your point, uh, Tristan, I've received a number of concerns of people who were worried about contacting their GPs and clinics when they had concerns over their health. So it's really good to know that should they need to, those services are still seeing patients. I'm going to move on to our next question. And this is a question that featured in our discussion back in January. And that was, do HIV positive people age quicker than HIV negative people? i.e. visible and non-visible aging, uh, and also cognitive impairment? And if so, how do we prevent or at least minimise this? I'll take, shall I start with that, uh, Rob? And that I think, um, I mean, this is a huge question, and I think it feeds into some of those things I'd, um, I'd said at the start. So we anticipate, since 2015, we've initiated everyone onto 
HIV therapy if they're ready um, as soon as possible after diagnosis. Uh, and we anticipate those people will age uh, in a more, I don't like the word normal, but in a more you know, usual way to their, their friends who are not HIV uh, positive. I think if you were diagnosed before 1996, uh, before we had triple combination therapy, uh, then undoubtedly HIV will impact uh, on your aging. It will impact on the comorbidities you develop. Uh, and some of the earlier, perhaps more toxic treatments that we use for HIV will also impact uh, on your aging. So I think for that reason, it's very important that we still have dedicated specialist services um, in particular for, for those people. And then between 1996 and 2015, it's quite a mixed picture. Um, we had guidelines that uh, meant we started HIV therapy at different CD4 counts. Uh, we initially had some quite toxic triple combinations that changed into more tolerable triple combinations. And so I think for the most part, those people will age fairly normally, but we still need to have a, you know, a wide angle lens to look out for certain cancers that develop in some people a little more early. Uh, we know, for instance, that anal cancer is much more common uh, in HIV positive men who have sex with men. Uh, and so I think uh, you need HIV clinics with uh, a sort of specialist lens to look, look out for and instruct you about the best way to screen for anal cancer. Uh, in terms of cognitive impairment, this is a, a really a very mixed bag. So there's been no clear conclusion from research really about whether people with HIV do develop earlier cognitive problems. Um, there was a big uh, American study recently that did seem to suggest that perhaps there was more dementia uh, occurring at slightly earlier age. Uh, but on the most part, uh, research in this field that's been going on for a long time now has not really conclusively demonstrated that people with HIV develop earlier dementia uh, or more severe dementia. Nonetheless, I think that kind of mixed picture means that if, you, if you're worried about your cognition or your memory, uh, if you're worried about the way your brain is working, then again, your clinic should be able to direct you to uh, a specialist service that can assess your memory in better depth. So I think it's a very mixed picture. People that have had HIV for a longer period of time certainly need to uh, be aware that they may develop certain problems earlier than other people. People that were diagnosed more recently perhaps can expect to have a more uh, normal and non-HIV affected aging process, although it may not be 100% the same as if they were not HIV infected, but we don't yet have data to see how people who are diagnosed more recently age over time. So I think what my question is, is what what technically is classed as cognitive impairment? I mean, I'm, I'm bad enough when I, I go to walk up my stairs in my house and then halfway up forget why I was walking up there in the first place. <laughs> um, but but I'm assuming that there is um, a set of criteria for what cognitive impairment is. Yeah, I'll keep this brief because um, I'd love to hear Rob's thoughts as well. But the um, essentially, so we're talking, there are different types of dementia. Most people are familiar with the Alzheimer type uh, dementia. We have no clear proof that people with HIV develop that sort of dementia. HIV specifically, if it is going to cause cognitive problems, some of the medicines can cause cognitive problems and you should talk to your clinic if you're worried about side effects from your, from your medicine. But there is research looking at whether HIV specifically affects um, people's cognitive function as well. And if it is going to affect your cognitive function, that kind of impact is usually on what we call executive functions, which are 
higher level planning so planning complex things people will say i've got a very high power job i can't cope with it or i can't plan to shop at the supermarket to cook a cook a meal um those kind of things where you have to plan and think and execute something uh, are the things that tend to go and sometimes it's patients that report those symptoms and sometimes it's their partners rob do you want me to repeat the question uh, no, uh, <laughs> uh, no, that's okay. I think I sort of held on to it. I, I mean, in 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 the clients that use the Sussex Beacon, again, there's two distinct camps, and it is those who have been living with HIV for a long time, so have had a very early diagnosis. If they are going to, will exhibit uh, some cognitive impairment and and it will be it's interesting uh, what Tristan said it will be around them planning their day-to-day lives and 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 getting things in place uh, that they need to do and so the peer mentoring uh, can help them to do that uh, to have a solution focused approach to build building things that reminders that can support them uh, within the Brighton area, of course, we have the Lawson Unit, which is the HIV clinic, um, and they have both a silver clinic for people aging with HIV, and they have an orange clinic uh, to support people with cognitive impairment. So re- referrals are easy to make. Uh, there's good support within the area. Um, it's possibly worth mentioning as well, just in a few weeks' time, um, an organization called Lunch Positive is setting up a befriending service, which will be very different from mentoring, operating at a different level. Uh, And they will be targeting people aged 50 and over um, who are in need of sort of befriending and maybe some more intense personal support. And can I just ask, Ron, to make a referral, do people just need to go to their GPs? Referrals can be made through our inpatient unit. We have a very close connection uh, with the Lawson unit and all the consultants there. But certainly they could get a referral through their GP as well, as long as they have shared with their GP that uh, they're living with HIV and are registered at the Lawson unit. That's great. Okay, so one of the next uh, questions, uh, comments that we've had in was, uh, being a part of the LGBTQ community, I'm all too aware of aging and not being married and having children who might support me as as I'm aging. I've become more aware of my mortality and I've noticed some of my friends and colleagues are now uh, getting ill uh, and or dying. Um, So the question that's come from this is, what support is out there for me as I get older and maybe more isolated and infirm? So, Rob, from your perspective. So, well, certainly I think West Sussex um, is very well uh, provided for in, in sort of community support. So, you know, most areas will have their community HIV team, uh, which will support people within the community. Um, there's the peer mentoring provision, of course, which there are quite a few, not just a beacon, but a few organizations who provide peer mentoring within Eastern West Sussex. Uh, there are befriending services. Um, there's little organizations like in Brighton, a charity called Peer Action, which organizes social events. Uh, they're not operating at the moment because of the lockdown, but they have swimming days, bowling, uh, bingo, trips to the theater or the cinema. Um, so within, I think, the Sussex area is quite well supported. It's probably a little bit more sparse if you go out towards Hastings, that you know, that side of Sussex. But no, there's a lot of community support, which is good and long may it continue. 
And Tristan, from uh, from a medical perspective, in terms of the support as people are are, are getting older and may have different needs, um, what what's the perspective on that? Are, are people more readily coming to you and talking about this as an issue? Uh, they are. I think it's very important that we remember this is a, um, you know, very much a uh, a new area and a, a growth area. Um, we're in a lovely place now where we can talk about aging with HIV, uh, which hasn't always been the case. And I think we need to remember that we need to address not only biological issues, and we've mentioned some psychological issues, but also, uh, you know, the kind of domestic social issues about living, about, as you've mentioned, not having families or children, perhaps, uh, maybe being a little bit more isolated as people age and thinking about where people want to have, you know, want to live in a, a longer term, whether or not they need uh, residential care or any uh, nursing home involvement. There are a number of organisations now looking at um, LGBTQ plus uh, social housing. Uh, there is more work to look at uh, LGBT. Uh, Q plus uh, uh, residential care and nursing uh, care as well. Um, I think because people have very real anxieties about the fact that uh, they may not feel their needs are fully understood as they age. So people are coming forward to discuss these needs now. Um, one of the other things we think very much about in our services Historically, care coordination um, has been thought of as a role that happens in primary care. Um, but I know Rob touched on some aspects of care that involve someone having disclosed their status to their GP. And we're aware that not everyone has disclosed their status to their GP. So we will often have discussions with people about the fact that we may not be able to provide every aspect of their care. We're an HIV service, but we will help to support them coordinate their care if their medical, uh, social or psychological care is becoming very complex. And I think that approach is, again, variable from clinic to clinic, but I think it's something we need to do, particularly for those patients we have who've been HIV positive for a very long time and may not have had the relationship with their GP that other patients or uh, people with other conditions may have. I mean, you talked about sort of LGBTQ support groups, and just for anybody listening, uh, um, to, uh, attached to this podcast will be a full list of uh, information that you can you can download. So, so don't worry if you if you miss anything during the podcast. The one of the one of the uh, questions that came in uh, lately was uh, regarding lockdown, and uh, one of the the the, quest, the person has actually said, lockdown has meant that clinic appointments have been significantly reduced. And often these interactions were vital in maintaining uh, a patient mental health care. It's fair to say that the lockdown has increased social isolation and loneliness. We aren't going to see our friends or our families uh, or, or get the opportunity to cultivate new relationships. And for many, the, the check-ins and the one-to-ones with their specialist or with their, their practice nurse um, was uh, an integral part of their social engagement. Is this likely to change this year? I think it, I think, I mean, I think this will change this year. I think we will, uh, you know, we're already on a slight levelling off or downswing of COVID cases. It's obviously been a very, very difficult start to 2021. Um, I think most of us, most clinics in the UK tried to get people back in for face-to-face -face appointments in the summer, including for blood tests. Um, but we're all very aware that uh, the human interaction that's so important um, for so many of our patients, and actually for us as clinicians as well, uh, as, uh, has you know been lost again, and I think we're all very keen to bring that back. Okay, uh, Rob. 
Yeah, I just think there's a slightly uh, maybe a mixed perspective. So, and I'm going to I'm including myself in in part of this. I think there's those who have been accustomed to and have benefited from maybe long-term intensive clinical support. And there are those of us who haven't necessarily maybe had that experience and have very quickly gone on to six monthly and yearly checkups and so don't miss the more regular support maybe because we've never really experienced it as much. So I think there's two things going on on there. So I sense maybe people in my boat uh, are more readily adaptable to just seeing your consultant once a year and having your bloods twice a year. Um, I think for others um, who either have a higher support need or are more used to an intensive care, um, I think it's almost a grieving process that they go through because they've lost access to their clinic or they're not seeing their consultant as much. And I think it's a always been a bit of a safety net that you know someone's there in the background that you can see on a regular basis. Um, so I think for some, it will have quite a big impact. I think it's fair to say when I was first diagnosed that the the trips into my specialist and to see the team were actually a really big, really big part of me understanding my journey living with HIV. And as I've gone through it and I've had less less need to speak to my specialist about it because it has been a case of going in, picking up my medication and then having that 10-minute conversation with my specialist who inevitably ends up talking about home decor and uh, decorating. <laughs> um, so I suppose in the sense that when, when people have got o- other comorbidities that they're living with and other concerns regarding medication and uh, perhaps adherence or, or even um, interactions between medications, that it's, it's understandable that people will want to spend more time in their clinics. Um, is it very much a case of teaching people to, to adapt in this situation or is it just something that everyone is going to have to get used to? I, 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 I feel really sad about the fact that what happened uh, last year felt very top down. One of the things that we are very proud of, I think, in HIV is that we see ourselves as a, you know, a model for long term condition management. And we also see ourselves usually as uh, very, you know, involving our service users in changes that we make to service provision. What I feel very sad about in the last year is the changes that came in were so rapid and so uh, top down that I think it has, um, you know, for our service users made them feel that sometimes things can happen that, you know, don't involve their thoughts about what will, what works well and what could be changed. So I think it needs to be a, uh, a process that brings our service users back in, in answer to your question, Chris, really, um, in that we ask people what went well during the last 12 months? You know, what bits, what, was having your medicine delivered helpful? Was having video consultations helpful? Um, you know, what went well? What didn't go so well? And how would you like us to do this going forward if we are tasked to maybe reduce face-to-face consultations uh, what can we do that would work you know what what's the experience been that worked well and what's not gone so well and how can we make this better together as opposed to the sort of top-down change that's happened in the last 12 months i think that's likely to be achieved by the engagement with other hiv organizations as well who yeah. who actually start that conversation and that dialogue okay aging 
Okay, I'm getting older, and now I'm taking meds for blood pressure and cholesterol. My concern is, is that HIV medications are still going to influence my body as I age. Is there anything that I can do to guard against the stress on my body? Uh, Tristan. Oh, it's so boring and annoying, isn't it, this question? Because, it, of course, there are all the horrible things that all of us struggle with. Um, that There is no doubt that, you know, some HIV all HIV medicines have some side effects. We have very well tolerated medicines now, but, uh, and, you know, most of our patients will be on a medication. Hopefully their clinician will have found them a medication regime that has the minimal toxicity for them uh, and something that they're able to live with uh, lifelong. And of course, many of my patients will say they have no side effects at all. And that's fantastic. Um, others really struggle with their, with their medicines and uh, with some of the associated side effects. Uh, and the one thing we know for everyone um, that, of course, improves our chances of aging normally is lifestyle modifications, modifications for all those things uh, that we all enjoy, but that we know can cause us trouble. So, uh, of course, smoking cessation uh, is one of the most important things people can do for their uh, long term health, regular exercise, moderating alcohol uh, and of course, moderating recreational drugs if you're a, a recreational drug user will reduce the inflammation, uh, the toxicity on many of your uh, organ systems, including your cognition, uh, and will improve your chances of aging gracefully and beautifully and successfully. Um, but I think it's important that everyone balances the enjoyment uh, they get from those things with the potential uh, for long-term harm and finds a, uh, a center ground where they can age happily as well as uh, biologically successfully. So how do I know, for example, if, if I, I'm a, a very young 43-year-old man uh, living with HIV and I, I suffer arthritic symptoms, how, how would I know, for example, that my arthritis is just a part of my natural aging process rather than something that's to do with the medication that I'm taking. Yeah, it's so tricky, isn't it? Because we don't, there aren't two of you. We didn't split you at the time of HIV diagnosis. And uh, unless you're an identical twin, Chris, in which case we might potentially have, you know, an HIV negative control person. Um, but essentially, we don't have two of you. So it's always, to some degree, uh, a value judgment about what, you, what what's really HIV related uh, and, and what isn't. Um, but I think with something like arthritis, uh, you'd be looking at, um, you know, are you on any medicine that can affect your bones? Uh, do you have, uh, you know, a detectable uh, HIV viral load? Are you optimized in terms of your HIV therapy? Are we doing all we can to reduce anything that might be provoking some inflammation in you? And if all those things are, are maximized, as they should be by your HIV service, then we can confidently say this probably isn't HIV related. It's probably some other arthritic process that you know you would have developed anyway okay but are, are there any hiv medications that have been linked to aging overall either biological or, or mental um so we know uh, there are most hiv medicines of course are good for your aging process because we know that untreated hiv is harmful in terms of I'm not saying that tritely in terms of we all know that untreated HIV can be serious to your immune system, but also having a detectable virus uh, can cause inflammation that affects other 
uh, organ systems. So, for instance, uh, you're more likely to have cardiovascular disease if you have untreated uh, HIV infection. Uh, you, you're more likely to develop cognitive problems if your HIV is not successfully treated. But we do know that some HIV treatments have impacts on other organs that can be uh, harmful and need monitoring. Um, so tenofovir uh, in its TDF form, there are two forms of tenofovir. The more modern one is called TAF. Um, TAF is not without side effects as well, but we do know that TDF, the older formulation of tenofovir in some people, can be associated with uh, low bone density. So it's important that if you're over 50, your clinic has a policy of uh, performing what's called a DEXA bone scan to check that your bones are healthy uh, and that TDF is not causing uh, any problems to your bones if that's a medicine you're receiving. Uh, in similar ways, we know that uh, older drugs like efavirenz or more modern drugs like dolutegravir, in a small subset of patients, uh, they can have uh, uh, impaired cognition or some neuropsychiatric side effects from those medicines. So again, it's important that you report any symptoms uh, to your clinician or that they have a process for checking with you and monitoring you if you're on those medicines for any long-term side effects. So not really accelerated aging, but a chance of side effects that may become greater as you are older uh, in some cases. That's great. Thank you, Tristan. And if anyone has any questions or concerns about their medication, you can, of course, have a discussion with your consultant. Um, moving on to our next question, Rob, I wanted to ask you about fitness and aging. I've always maintained my physical fitness, although I have to admit, maybe lately I'm carrying a few extra lockdown love handles. If you are HIV positive, could you begin to do some form of exercise, whether that be walks, yoga, or maybe a form of resistance training? as something you can start even after your HIV diagnosis? It could be gentle walking, as I said, chair, chair Pilates. Um, anything that works up a sort of gentle sweat for you as an individual within your capabilities. You know, you don't have to go mad. You don't have to strain yourself. It's just that you are giving your body a little bit of a workout two or three times a week. And what about ways to perhaps focus the mind maybe? My own view is yes, and I think especially with anxiety uh, uh, or sort of depression, uh, which affects a lot of people living with H HIV. Um, there's a little acronym that I, it's not mine, but it's one that I find very useful, which is just about have I had my daily bread? Uh, so the B is to, if we get upset or emotionally stressed, to breathe, you know, to remember to breathe and to breathe through the situation. Uh, the R is to make sure we have good relaxation. Uh, so what are we doing to relax, to de-stress? And that's not half a bottle of wine. Uh, the E is to make sure we engage in some form of exercise, exercise that's fun. It doesn't have to be strenuous. It could be chair Pilates. You know, it could be anything that gives us a, a little bit of exercise. The A is for ac new activities that keep us stim stimulated and mentally aware. And the D is for diet, uh, rubbish in, rubbish out. So, you know, are we having our daily bread? That For me, that's a good little sort of acronym to use. I really like that, Rob. I think I'll be writing bread down. Actually, brilliant acronym. Um, on to our, our next question, and this is one for both of you. Let us imagine that the campaign to eradicate HIV transmissions by 2030 is successful, and there are no or limited new transmission cases in the future. 
What do you feel are the psychological challenges that may face an aging HIV community that is diminishing in in size and also in public awareness? It's something fairly recent to consider uh, because that is the intended goal. You know, that, that is the holy grail, that there's no more new transmission. Uh, then you have people who are sort of living their natural lifespan and are dying, and those that are uh, still alive become a diminishing cohort. Uh, what is that going to mean for people? I think there will be a sense of being part of something that is literally dying out, that there's less connection, there's less peer. Uh, there's not so many people around who have had the same experience as you. I mean, you know, we are talking a little way in the future, but I think there will be possibly quite a large psychological impact around being part of a diminishing cohort and not having, you know, similar others around you um, to share that lived experience with and to uh, share experiences with. Um, I think then there's going to be increased need for befriending services, you know, for community social support uh, with people who have an insight and an understanding of that experience, even if it's not a shared lived experience. How about you, Tristan? Yeah, I think um, it's, I agree with everything Rob said. And I also think that one of the things we found in the last few years is that, of course, there's been fantastic press attention uh, around the successes in HIV, fantastic uh, coverage of the successes of PrEP and falling HIV diagnosis, partic- diagnoses, particularly in uh, men who have sex with men. Um, but there's been less publicity about the problems that people continue to face, uh, I think, as they age with HIV, uh, including uh, stigma, uh, including fears of disclosure to uh, their communities uh, and to other clinicians who are treating them. Uh, and I think Obviously, we want to celebrate the successes, but we also want to make sure that we uh, continue to care for people who've been very affected by HIV and also the side effects of, as I've said before earlier, more toxic medications. Um, So I think these two things have to be seen in in, in balance and in tandem. Okay, thank you. Um, To to both of you, uh, this is, and I I don't honestly mind which one of you goes first (laughs) on the next question. Many uh, many HIV uh, uh, positive people are, are currently receiving letters from the government outlining uh, th- that the state considers them to be vulnerable due to the current pandemic. Uh, many of these HIV positive people do not consider themselves vulnerable in any way, shape, or form, uh, and nor do their medical teams. Um, Tristan, what's what's your view of of firstly of this blanket approach? Are there potential consequences to to the approach? Thank you. I mean, I think this is a, a difficult area. I think. I mean, I always think of um, this in terms of again personal perception. So you have to read the small print here, which will often say, um, you know, some of the the warnings we've had through COVID have been people who are immunocompromised. Well, people with uh, suppressed virus on treatment with a good CD4 count should not consider themselves to be immunocompromised. Um, They have well-functioning immune systems. They have normal life expectancy. They cannot transmit their virus sexually. You know, all of these things that we say it's not the government messages should not um, undermine that. that. Those things are all true. 
we have a new uh, viral pandemic that the information around which is evolving all the time uh, and therefore we have to look at evidence as it comes out very carefully and I think for people who are not virally suppressed people who have a low CD4 count we know of course those people are vulnerable to other infections um, so we think it's reasonable for them to consider uh, higher precautions uh, for shielding from uh, COVID-19 um, but equally we think if they can get onto treatment if they've not been on or offered treatment before they're recently diagnosed and they can have a good cd4 count restitution then we think they should have similar risks to other people and then we know the other uh, underlying factors that uh, are there as risk factors for covid19 apply to people with hiv as well so we know that having uh, diabetes for instance is a risk factor uh, we know that having had, uh, for instance, a, uh, an organ transplant or being on dialysis can be a risk factor. And we have a number of HIV positive patients who fall into that category. We know that being on other immunosuppressants, perhaps for organ transplantation, as an example, uh, can be a risk factor of COVID-19. And those people should fall into a shielding category. So it's really, you know, some of the other risk factors uh, that add on top of the HIV that I think people need to, um, uh, you know, put this all into a, uh, a risk calculator for themselves and say, how do you know what what what's really applicable to me? And probably for most people, the HIV will not be the top factor. But if you've had one of the other major risk factors for COVID-19, then that may be the thing that makes you need to shield. And Rob, have you spoken to many people who have experienced this as well? Uh, yes, we have. Um, and also myself included, you know, I'm on this uh, shielding list and get the letters telling me to not dare go outside or speak to anyone else and to keep myself isolated. Um, I think, you know, in, initially it was all down to a couple of lazy alg algorithms that picked up people that needn't have been picked up in the sort of shielding advice. And I think it caused a lot of uh, concern amongst the wider HIV population. Um, and it has been a lot of conversations with individuals about their comorbidities, um, how they are with their HIV. Is it well treated? Are, are they suppressed? You know, um, and then what do they really have to worry, worry about? I mean, for myself, I still get the shielding letters, but that's nothing to do with my HIV status. It's because of COPD uh, from being a heavy smoker as a younger man. So, you know, I do have to maybe be a bit sensible because uh, if I were to contract COVID, it probably wouldn't do me any good, you know, because of my poor lung function anyway. Uh, so I think it is, you know, individuals, comorbidities, what else is going on for me? HIV, well-maintained and treated, isn't an issue, and people need reassuring about that. Understandably, there's been a lot of concern and questions about COVID for people living with HIV, and we wanted to take a moment to address them. When it comes to new strains of COVID being identified, are there any concerns over these for people living with HIV, particularly with the South African and Brazilian variants, or, or is it just too early to say? I think you're absolutely right. I think it's just too early to say. I think, um, but, but again, I'll just say that, reiterate that previous message that if you're well treated for HIV with a good CD4 count and suppressed viral load, we have no reason to think that you're at any increased risk to anybody else. So I, I don't yet feel, A, we don't have enough data about the new variants and their, you know, their full potential for being more serious, but B, 
I, I think stick to the basics. Well treated HIV with a good CD4 count, uh, you should not be any risk for anything uh, extra compared to people who are not HIV infected. Tristan, we've received a few questions about the vaccine. What does it mean for people living with HIV? The important thing to remember at the moment, and this data again is evolving, is vaccination is there to protect you uh, as a person from severe COVID infection. So you may still get infected with the virus. Uh, you may transmit the virus. Now, the data there, again, is a little unclear at the moment because um, we we hope some vaccines may actually prevent you from transmit, you know, from being infected and transmitting the virus. But the major impact of most of the vaccines at the moment is that if you get infected with uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, you will not get severe disease and you will not need admission to hospital. It does not necessarily mean that you are, cannot pass it on to other people who may not have been vaccinated. So people should really see vaccination as being safe for them. Uh, it may actually increase. Uh, again, I'm going to sort of reserve the right to change my opinion if more data becomes available, but it may actually mean that you have a higher chance of passing on the virus because you don't get symptoms, you don't know you're sick, you don't know you're infected, and therefore you're putting people who are not vaccinated at increased risk. So very much for now, see the vaccination as something that protects you as an individual if you've been lucky enough to receive it, uh, but continue to follow all the usual precautions around social distancing because you may be placing other people at, at risk if you don't know you're infected. Following on from that point, Tristan, there is a great deal of misinformation out there about the efficacy of the vaccine. And I read a news report recently where the government have given councils funds towards combating false information and also to encourage high-risk groups to have the jab. And this is largely aimed at minority ethnic backgrounds, older and disabled people who have been chosen for financial support as these groups have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic and are more likely to be dealing with its long-term effects. I've been fortunate enough to have the Pfizer vaccine. And if there's anyone out there who is concerned about vaccines, then the British HIV Association has up-to-date information and we will put their information on the links on this podcast. It just remains for me to say a huge thank you to Rob and Tristan for taking part in today's podcast and our discussion back in January. We have included additional resources in the notes section of this podcast of organisations that provide support and guidance on the issues we've spoken about today. A special thank you to the LGBT Consortiums, LGBT Plus Futures National Emergencies Trust Fund, who have very kindly funded today's podcast. Rob, Tristan, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Chris. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Now, go take a moment out of your day, head out amongst nature for a walk. It's a wonderful way to calm the mind and soothe the soul. Until next time, take care.